looking at this picture of you, you're a crazy man. <laughs> Welcome back to the Napoleon Show, Jay David Markham after a sojourn to the continent, or to the United Kingdom anyway. How was your trip? The trip was wonderful, and I, I suspect that the, the Scots and the uh, Northern Englanders would object to your characterization of it as the <laughs> continent. But but uh, we, we spent three weeks in, mostly in Scotland, but also the Lake District, uh, along Hadrian's Wall, uh, stayed at some beautiful places, did some hiking up in the Lake District, and, and, and did a little hiking on the Isle of Skye, and stayed in a castle. And, and picked up some very fine medication. You know, the Scots are very well known for, for their medication. But, but I must admit, now I'm taking some, even as we speak here, I'm a little nervous that it, that it might be out of date. You know, uh, they always say don't take medications beyond their due data. And this thing says it's 30 years old. So, <laughs> so it, it, it may be a little bit beyond uh, the pale here, or maybe I'll be beyond the pale if I have too much of it. Well, I'm, I'm sure the show can only benefit from you partaking of your 30-year-old single malt medication. <laughs> well, I can only hope. Now, uh, where we left our good friend Napoleon last time, he had really uh, secured the, the first major step in his political career, which was becoming first consul of France, doing the uh, basically a, a coup d'etat on the directory, and overturning the people who thought he was going to be working for uh, and making sure that he took the big chair to not just be the the sword he was actually the first consul very quickly sacked the other two consuls that <laughs> had come into power with him established uh, his own second and third consuls in Combeshire and Le Brun and uh, he's in the big seat. And what I thought we'd talk about in this show is maybe take a break for a little while on military affairs and just take some time to focus on some of the domestic reforms that Napoleon did when he took over the administration of France because, you know, I, I think it's uh, quite often overlooked in the the public perception of Napoleon. He's obviously well known for the military stuff that he did. But uh, there's perhaps less appreciation for some of the quite revolutionary and, and drastic things he did to the administration of France, which really ushered in not just France, but Europe into the post-feudal modern era, David. Well, well, sure. Uh, you're absolutely correct, as I, I think I must say about every 15 minutes on, <laughs> on, on these shows. I, I need to come up with a, a better way of agreeing with you. Uh, I just wanted to comment on, on Napoleon's uh, taking of power. He, he had brought two things to the coup d'etat uh, when, when they recruited him. One, of course, was the, the sword. You had mentioned that, that he had some control of the army and would would give a, a military level of support to uh, a, a, the attempted and ultimately successful ouster of the uh, of the directory. Uh, not only did he have his command position, uh, but he was extremely popular with the soldiers. Uh, soldiers uh, uh, under Napoleon had known nothing but success from their point of view, uh, whether it was in uh, as early as Toulon uh, or the first Italian campaign or the Egyptian campaign, uh, soldiers had grown to have a great deal of respect for him and, and great deal of admiration and indeed you know, affection for him. Uh, the other thing, of course, he brought was, was extraordinary popularity with, with the people of France. 
And a lot of folks forget that, I think. You know, he wasn't just seen as a military leader who had been successful. Uh, he was, he was a, a person who had uh, twice or three times uh, pulled the government fat out of the fire. He had, he had pulled the government fat out of the fire at Toulon in 94 when the, when, when he you know, reestablished control of, of that important port city uh, for the revolutionary government. He had saved the, the, that same government with a whiff of grape shot a few years later. Uh, then in Italy, he had he had uh, you know pulled their fat out of the fire again by taking a, a disastrous military campaign and completely turning it around to to complete victory. Uh, in Egypt, uh, while historians may may differ on how successful the Egyptian campaign was, uh, the people of France uh, had no question in their mind that Napoleon was returning as a as a great hero. Uh, and if he could do so well in the military, uh, goodness knows how how much he would be able to do uh, if if we gave him power. And and I and I give you this background for two reasons. Uh, one is is to sort of, in, in looking back, uh, talk to Ciez and the others and say, you know, what were you thinking? How could you possibly have not thought that someone who brought so much to the table, both in terms of his control of the military and his popularity with the people, uh, plus a fair dollop of, of ambition, and, and no one would accuse Napoleon of, of not being ambitious, how could you possibly uh, think that he would not end up being more than than first among among equals, so it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. Now I don't know parenthetically whether or not Napoleon really had planned all this or whether he was reacting to opportunities. Uh, we knew he was ambitious. We knew he thought he could do something special. Whether he really truly thought he could gain control of France at that point is is really difficult to say. But he did, and when he does, he brings all of that credibility. And all of that popularity to his job. So now, not only does he have the ability to take charge of the government, he also has the ability to get that government to do the kind of things that he would would like to see done. And he is no one, if not a man with enormous uh, ideas, a wide range of ideas, and as we'll see this evening, uh, a, a person who will implement those ideas uh, very, very successfully. And I think it's always been one of the parts of his story which has impressed me the most, the way that... I mean, his success in military affairs is understandable in that he had been trained from the age of, you know, 12 as a military uh, operative, uh, as a soldier and then a military officer. But... You know, he had no formal training. He wasn't a lawyer by background, as many of the members of the directory were, and certainly the other members of the, the consular were. He basically just stepped into this position of power, and judging from the, the way that I read it today, wasn't just uh, the wallflower who allowed everyone else to contribute, although it obviously was, uh, there were a lot of different parties contributing stuff, but he had not only very firm ideas on how the economy should be built and sustained, what the legal system should look like, what the religious freedom situation should be look like, but they, they were eminently sensible ideas and very progressive ideas looking back on them from you know the 21st century. 
And, well, sure. And, it amazes me how, though, he, he just stepped in and seemed to have <laughs> such an amazing grasp and control of all of these things from the get-go. <laughs> from day one, he just stepped in, and it never ceases to, to amaze me. Well, you know, I'm a little bit surprised to hear you say that because you know Napoleon very, very well. And, and I think if we look at some of the things he had done earlier, we could certainly see that he, he had a, a number of uh, personal characteristics that made it possible for him to be as successful uh, as he was. First of all, you have to understand about Napoleon. He was brilliant. He was a, he was a genius by any measure of the word. Uh, he, he was... A, a, a one of the most intelligent people probably in the history of the world and 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 I say that advisedly I mean I I put Napoleon up there with with any number of other really brilliant people who were in leadership positions people like Caesar or Alexander uh, but I also put him up there with really brilliant uh, mathematicians and scientists and so on. And he hung out with brilliant mathematicians, scientists, philosophers. He listened to them. He had discussions with them. He went to the salons of, of, of Paris and, and participated. He was made a member of the Institute, which was the highest academic or intellectual uh Honor that that France could give then or 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 now for that matter to be a member of of the institute is to be a member of the the top intellectual uh, cadre, <clears throat> which is one reason. If I may get a, a little plug here and sort of parenthetically, my book Napoleon for Dummies was was recently published in in, in French uh, in, in France, of course, and and a the best known and, and top Napoleonic scholar in France, Jean Toulard, wrote a, uh, uh, a, a short preface to the book. And Toulard is a member of the Institute, which immediately identifies him as one of the very top scholars in, in France. So, so Napoleon had a, a brain that was universally recognized as among the best around. And then, of course, the other thing is his leadership ability. Very, very few people in history could match Napoleon for just sheer natural leadership ability. He had the ability to make people follow him. Not make in a coercive way, but make them want to follow him. And that was certainly true with his soldiers, but it was also true with the people of France in general and with the people that he worked with in instituting the reforms and improvements that we're going to talk about today. People listened to Napoleon, they respected him, and they wanted him to be successful. Mm. And, uh, you know, I guess it's uh, worth keeping in mind here, too, that in seven, at the end of 1799, when Napoleon... Uh, took the position of first consul. He was thirty years of age. Now, <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, you know, it would be astounding in this day and age to have somebody at the age of thirty become the the prime minister or the president of uh, you know a, a large, prosperous, leading Western country. It would be uh, astounding, you know, and uh, it, it certainly would be. So, uh, you know, all these things combined just make it uh, an incredibly impressive story. As you say, without, without a shadow of a doubt, the man was a genius in all of these affairs. And I, again, I think that's, 
you know, when I meet people for the first, well, I talk to people about Napoleon for the first time and gauge their perception of Napoleon that they may have gathered through their school education or just what you pick up through the, the popular press or whatever, I, I think the majority of people certainly don't appreciate that about him. They may know that he was a great soldier, but they don't truly appreciate the level of genius that he really was. Well, sure, that's absolutely right, because after all, in the English world in particular, the English-speaking world, uh, we have tended to be indoctrinated that, that his main thing was military, that he was a dictator, that he was a tyrant, that he was the ogre of Corsica, or maybe that he was you know, uh, a relatively enlightened person who, who used his military genius to, to gain control of Europe for a, a brief time. But we are seldom told about the specific domestic reforms that he brought not only to France but ultimately to uh, much of Europe and indeed in the case of the uh, Code Napoleon to uh, elsewhere in the world as well. That's right. And we'll, we'll talk a bit about all of those things today. Now, immediately after he became First Consul, he obviously wanted to secure peace with the other. Now, now that he was in control of the reins, he, he wanted to secure peace so he could focus on domestic reforms. Obviously, France wasn't in a good way when he took over. People will remember from our last episode that there was a lot of financial mismanagement, a lot of corruption going on with the directory. You know, money was finding its way out of the public coffers into the private coffers of some of the individuals like Paul Barat, who were running the directory. And th they were in a very desperate situation. And Napoleon obviously understood that in order to fix these things, he needed to stay at home, focus on it, and couldn't be out fighting battles all the time. And the first thing that he did, as I understand it, is he reached out to the monarchs of Europe and offered peace, but uh, was not very successful in getting them to agree to that. He, he reached out particularly to the King of England and made some um, efforts there, but was rebuffed. Well, he was rebuffed uh, on, on all uh, points, and, and we will probably next time get into the result of, of, of some of that. He, he wanted to consolidate his gains. He wanted to, to, to live in a peaceful uh, situation. Uh, but England uh, was having none of it. Napoleon wrote a letter to King George III saying, you know, listen, we've, we've had all these years of warfare. Uh, I, I know you didn't like the the uh, revolution too much, etc., etc. But but I just want to to rule my country in peace. And the people have spoken. You know, there was a plebiscite that overwhelmingly approved Napoleon as as first consul. So how about we just call a halt to our hostilities? And and George replies, uh, basically saying that okay, we'll be glad to have peace just as soon as the Bourbon monarchy has been restored to the throne and France has been reduced to its borders uh, of 1789. Uh, otherwise, uh, George writes, England will continue its quote-unquote just and defensive war. Whoa, um, sounds like Israel has been reading his letters. <laughs> well, we don't probably want to go there because, <laughs> because unlike... George, who did not have any rockets fired from from across the channel at him, Israel at least certainly can say 
you know, we've had rockets fired at Haifa and, and other places. But, but England had not been attacked. England was constantly uh, worried that France might attack, and they had various invasion fears throughout the Napoleonic period. But uh, uh, George, in spite of the fact that no one's attacked him at all, and frankly no one was really in a position, and at that point I don't think Napoleon had the slightest interest in attacking uh, King George and, 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 and England. I think he would have been delighted to have peace. After all, uh, Napoleonic France was about to become the most progressive country on the continent, and you can argue that one of the most progressive countries in the world at that time uh, was was England. Now, you know, England had you know a, a few little things that weren't real progressive, and Napoleonic France had a few things that weren't progressive. But by and large, they were pretty good for the period of time that they had. But the, the you know Napoleon was told by the British, listen, France gets to give up all the territories uh, that you gained. And then you're going to pretend that the French Revolution never happened. You're going to bring back another Louis uh, to the throne. Uh, and then we'll make peace. Well, not only was Napoleon having none of that, but of course the French people were not going to have any of that either. The French people didn't go through a revolution. The French people didn't put Napoleon on the throne only to to bring uh, back uh, another uh, a Bourbon to the throne, and uh, and and that 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 just not going to happen. At, at one point, uh, uh, Louis, uh, the future Louis the Eighteenth, uh, thinks that Napoleon might very well bring him back to the throne, and 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 writes him a letter saying, "Well done, my boy. I'd like to uh, uh, thank you for all you've done, and 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 now I'd like to come back." And uh, Napoleon wrote back very respectfully, saying, "Yeah, if you come back, it'll be over the bodies of a." Hundred thousand dead French soldiers. So uh, you know that 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 whole scenario was a was was a, a non-starter, and unfortunately, as a result, uh, so was peace. Uh, Austria gave a similar uh, uh, response. They they pretended to consider peace, but but really they weren't uh, very interested. And in fact, in June of 1799, England, Austria, and Russia had formed uh, the second coalition, uh, they thought they were going to win, and so why should they bother uh, uh, negotiating uh, with Napoleon? But Napoleon comes out of this okay. You know, he's tried, he's made peace overtures, he clearly is not the aggressor. Again, your comments about our image of Napoleon are, are well taken. If you ask the average person on the street uh, what they think of Napoleon was here, an aggressor, or was he fighting defensive wars? Uh, they would say, "Oh, he was an aggressor. He was always attacking." Yada yada yada. Well, the fact of the matter is that in this case, and in most of the other cases, he was in fact the one fighting a defensive war. It was the Second Coalition that was uh, organized against him and that was moving uh, against Napoleon. Uh, in this case, uh, in in Italy, uh, the Austrians are moving against French interests uh, in Italy uh, had done so, in fact, while Napoleon was uh, in, uh, in Egypt. Mm. Yeah, so it's, you know, he, he reaches out, he tries to create peace, peace gets rebuffed, 
and and we'll talk about what happens, I guess, in uh, probably the next episode. With, we follows on with those battles, but you know, let, let's look now at some of the domestic reforms that he did. I guess probably the reform that he is best known today for is what is known alternatively as the Civil Code or the Code Napoleon, which became the legal system not only for France, but for all of the... Uh, he obviously took that with him into all of the countries that he annexed or you know took control of over the period he was uh, running a large part of Europe. And it still remains today, doesn't it, the, the, the primary legal system of quite a few countries in Europe? Well, it's the primary legal system of France, obviously, uh, and there are elements of it uh, in various other nations, uh, in, in Europe, in, in, in French Africa, and, and for that matter, in Louisiana and the United States, which was the, the, the most French uh, area of, of the United States, obviously, with the port of uh, New Orleans uh, as, as, as its base. Uh, let me just, by way of sort of a prelude to, to this, and you're, you're, you're correct when you say that, that this code, Napoleon, as it became known uh, some years after it was, uh, uh, formulated, is, is a major, major contribution of Napoleon to current world history and, and certainly to the, to the history of that time. The, the French Revolution, to go back a few years, uh, is sometimes is seen as this radical, you know, the sans culottes of of, of the uh, sections of of, of Paris, uh, of the great unwashed uprising against the elite uh, uh, nobility. It was always really much more a middle class operation. The ideals uh, that you see, liberty, fraternity, equality. Uh, are, are the ideals of an educated middle class, not of uh, per, Parisian uh, street workers and so on. Uh, and the, the goals of the French Revolution were largely the goals of the middle class. Robespierre was the lawyer and so on. Uh, and Napoleon was very much the same way. When Napoleon uh, takes power uh, in 1799, he's not taking power on behalf of of the great unwashed, if you'll forgive me, uh, any more really than the French revolutionary leaders were. Both Napoleon and the French Revolution stood for the middle class. They wanted a, a good, robust economy. They wanted good commerce. They wanted uh, legal protections for property as well as for uh, individual uh, liberties. Uh, he, as we'll see, they want an education system that will uh, promote middle class values and provide for middle class workers, uh, government workers, and and so on. Uh, and and so uh, that's why you see so much of, of of what Napoleon does. And Napoleon bases virtually everything that he does on one element of the French Revolution. Uh, and that is the element of equality. When you think about the middle class in virtually any, certainly Western nation, certainly any democratic nation, the, the single unifying thought or the single unifying principle uh, that, that binds uh, middle class values together is the idea that everybody has an equal shot at being successful. 
that everybody has a chance to, to start a business or to go to school or, or to get a job and to become wealthy or, or to not become wealthy or to fail. I mean, everybody has this, this concept of equality. Now, sometimes we give it more lip service uh, than we do uh, hardcore support. Uh, the rights of minorities, the rights of women, and so forth throughout history have not always been uh, given the the same level of strength as the as the concept has been given. But nevertheless, uh, equality is really fundamental to 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 middle class societies. And 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 really, at the time of Napoleonic France, particularly during the consulate, uh, the only other place. Uh, in the world that was really truly promoting the the concept was probably the United States, who who also believed in in equality. Now France wasn't completely equal, and the United States certainly uh, was not completely equal at the time of Napoleon. Ask women, ask ask African Americans, ask non non uh, uh, land holding you know white males for that matter. Uh, in, in America and, and, and certain groups in France, but but England and the rest of the the uh, uh, the, the, the continent of Europe was, was certainly not uh, very interested in in equality. So when we talk about the the legacy, whether it's the legal legacy, the educational legacy, the economic legacy, even the infrastructure that we'll talk about, all of these things are built on this one principle of equality. Uh, later on, uh, Napoleon is, 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 says that inside every soldier's knapsack is a marshal's baton. And he really meant that. And what that means is the marshal's baton, or the baton was the symbol of, of, a, of a marshal of the empire, which was the absolute highest rank that you could achieve, uh, both in the military and in civilian life. And what he's saying is every common soldier has the ability to rise to that level. And some of his marshals, like Marshal Michel Ney and others, did exactly that. They came from humble backgrounds and, and they became marshals of the empire. Napoleon himself, of course, came from a very humble background, albeit technically a, a, a noble background. He came from essentially a middle class background on Corsica and he rose, uh, we might be forgiven uh, uh, for saying to rather stupendous heights. And uh, aside from that meritocracy, there was also, uh, as I understand it, prior to the revolution, you know, a, a very complex legal situation in France where you didn't have a single set of centralised laws like we're familiar with today in, in, in most countries around the world. You had thousands and thousands of regional codes and royal decrees and other laws, some of which were uh, perhaps in conflict with others and they were separated in the north and the south. It was a, there was, If you travelled around the country, you didn't know what you could get in trouble for. It was a very complex legal situation. So they, at the end of this process, they had one set of laws. Well, sure. Uh, you had at least 15,000 different regional codes, royal decrees, uh, other kinds of, of things. Uh, in, the, in, in, in the South, you, <clears throat> you had your law based on Roman law, uh, which was different than, than, than the, the basis of law in the North. And Napoleon once uh, said, we are a nation with 300 books of laws, yet without laws. And, and that's absolutely correct. Uh, you're, you're right. When you would travel from one part of the country to another, you were never quite sure 
what was uh, permissible and what wasn't. Now, in the United States, uh, there's at least a little hint of that as you go from state to state. There are different state laws, and and I suppose in the UK, some of the the laws in in, in England uh, might be different than those in Scotland and, and or Wales. But but generally speaking, in both the UK and Australia and and the United States, there is a fundamental set of law, federal law, we would call it here, that that binds the country together and and establishes basic rights and and basic codes of behavior uh, that that states cannot override. And that's what Napoleon sought to do. Uh, Napoleon sought to take uh, the law and and unify it, codify it, and centralize it. There's a real irony here, too, because... Since the days of Louis the Fourteenth, France had been a very centralized nation. It was, in many ways, the most centralized nation in Europe. And yet, for all of that, they they had this what I called on a TV show once a hodgepodge of of laws and codes and declarations and proclamations and and local things. and And Napoleon was quite correct in in, in needing to uh, to 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 bring some kind of of order to that mess. Now, he obviously didn't sit down by himself with uh, a quill and start writing this thing down. He uh, pulled together a, a committee uh, of legal scholars, as I understand it, and they sat down uh, with him uh, in the room for at least uh, a good portion of the time to figure out you know, the, the general themes of the document and where they were to focus. And they pulled together a draft. They sat down in early 1800 and pulled together a draft in uh, around about four months. Uh, before the fi- it was several years before the final document was finally passed. Uh, I think 1804. So it took you know several years to pull this together. But they were able to get the basis of it together you know relatively quickly. So, you know, sitting down from scratch and, and writing a new legal code in four months to me sounds like an amazing achievement. Well, it was amazing. It was an amazing achievement, uh, and Napoleon did chair around half of the sessions or so. Uh, his detractors like to point out that he didn't really write the Code Napoleon. Uh, he had an awful lot to do with the Code Napoleon, though, and the Code Napoleon, or the Civil Code, uh, as as it is technically called, of course, uh, was a very progressive approach to to the law compared to what had been done. And one reason, Cameron, that it took several years for the code to finally become adopted was that for all the revolution and for the coup d'etat and for all of Napoleon's personal popularity, the fact of the matter was that on in many areas... France was still very conservative. The, the church may have been uh, uh, deprived of its formal power, but the fact is that the people of France and many of the people in positions of power were not really all that excited about individual freedom, uh, about you know uh, property rights for for women. Uh, about the secularization of society, taking away some more of the power of the church. Uh, and they fought Napoleon tooth and nail. And 
we think of Napoleon sometimes as this this great you know dictator or leader who was going to get his way all the time. And I can tell you, in these meetings on the Code Napoleon or on the Code Civil, uh, he did not always uh, get his way, uh, particularly when the uh, the discussions turned to to such things as as marriage and the family. Uh, the, 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 the law for marriage and the family largely followed the Roman traditions, giving the husband power as head of the household, putting men in charge of the, of the family and of their wives. Uh, husbands uh, were not generally uh, caught uh, or not generally punished if they were caught having an affair, whereas as, as women were, uh, the right to divorce was guaranteed, but there were restrictions on it. Uh, the Catholic Church, of course, fought it uh, bitterly uh, to the end, uh, although ultimately, uh, with restrictions, the right to divorce was included. Uh, the, the, the right of individuals to choose any profession they wanted to and to engage in free enterprise was included. The right of people to have freedom of conscience. Uh, on the other hand, uh, uh, unions were not uh, allowed there were restrictions on the ability of workers to to organize. This was a very pro-business uh, approach, uh, to, to be sure. Uh, the the feudal order, all of the old feudal order, the hereditary nobility and so forth, much of which was realistically already gone, was was eliminated. Uh, the, the the code included provisions that any land that had been taken from the church and 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 uh, redistributed, shall we say. Uh, could not be given back to the church. This was extremely important to the people of France, to the middle class <clears throat> and, and to the wealthy who had gained control of this land because it meant they could now plan on having that land, having that wealth, doing what it was in commerce or, or trade or whatever that they were that they were going to. And then finally, uh, again, what I call in my book the secularization of society, the separation of church and state, which is something that is still an enormous issue in the world today. Even in, in my country, the United States, we have you know, conservative Christians, for example, who, who don't tend to, to, to believe as much as, as I do anyway in the separation of church and state. And, and certainly in the Muslim world, you see a great deal of that. And, and indeed, in parts of Israel, you see a great deal of questioning on the the, the secularization of the state, the separation of church and state. Uh, but the privileges of the clergy are removed. Religious freedom was guaranteed. In another discussion, we'll talk about in particular the religious freedom of the Jews and so on. Uh, but all of this is put in the civil code. None of it had been there before. None of it was anywhere else in Europe. It was certainly not in, in the UK. Uh, and, and, and not even all of it was necessarily found in the United States Constitution. Although, again, the United States was the other prime example of that period of a, of a relatively secular, relatively progressive uh, nation. And what kind of uh, pushback did he get inside of France for some of these reforms? Obviously, you had 
you know, so you had centuries and centuries of a particular form of, you know, local order and, and the roles that the clergy would play, etc., a lot of which had been dismantled by the revolution. But I'm sure there were a lot of parties that were looking for, you know, some of these old titles to come back. Did he, did he get a lot of uh, friction? Well, sure he did, and, and indeed, as you pointed out earlier, it took several years uh, before the legislative bodies would would finally ratify the the Code Civil. It was 1804 when this thing finally passed. Uh, he had to fight tooth and nail with the conservative uh, uh, legislators and the Senate, particularly. Uh, he he got a lot of flack, not a great deal of necessarily direct threat to his leadership position. Uh, but stalling, obfuscating, trying to circumvent, uh, and, and even later when it's passed, so he's going to find that that with the freedom of the Jews, uh, for example, uh, there's a lot of people trying to circumvent the the the, the effort that he makes, uh, and and certainly you're going to probably find in a lot of local areas women aren't necessarily given as much uh, freedom as they could. So it's a it's a long hard struggle. I think anyone who was a veteran of of struggles for for human rights in any country knows that there's always a lot of pushback. <clears throat> there's always a lot of people who think we're going too far, too fast, uh, and and Napoleon had to deal with that. And and they were up front, right up up in his face with that in some of the committee meetings. Uh, some of the committee meetings were, were vigorously debated, uh, and and uh, he did not always get his way when when his uh, commission would vote. Sometimes they would vote in, in directions that he didn't approve of. But he was not a dictator. He was not a tyrant. If he could not persuade them, then then so be it. And he also uh, instituted a lot of public education because before the revolution, education was something that was mostly reserved for the nobles of the land and outside of that, a lot of education was sort of provided by the Catholic Church, which obviously was swept away and uh, he set up a bunch of public schools. Well, sure. He, he uh, First of all, the, the education, as you say, in... in pre-Napoleonic days was largely reserved higher education anyway advanced education was reserved for the sons of noblemen with a few exceptions uh, education for the masses such as it wa- was and, and for girls uh, was largely limited to gr- what we might call grade school now and, and was generally provided by the, the church with a very heavy dollop of, of religious uh, education, and and Napoleon wants to change all of that. And again, this gets right back to my opening remarks on this this part of, about the middle class. You know, what's Napoleon looking for? He's looking for a system where you have an educated cadre of workers, whether they're for business enterprises and trade and commerce, or whether they're for uh, the officer corps of the military or for the, the government work in, in general, you want a well-educated, loyal uh, group of, of people uh, who can fill these positions. And how do you get that? Well, you get that through 
a well-designed curriculum that's available to a, a wider group of people that had ever been included in, in this educational effort uh, before. And so that's, that's what Napoleon comes up with. He, he, he has your, your basic uh, secondary schools, which is more or less ages 10 to 16, which has some public and some private schools, uh, but but even even the religious schools had to have a curriculum that was approved in Paris, uh, and and the the point of these schools was to give a good basic education. After all, we're talking up to age sixteen here, but also to determine who was, you know, eligible, who was a, a likely suspect, a likely prospect for going uh, uh, further. Uh, there were teacher incentives to to find and properly prepare the best students. Uh, this is something near and dear to my heart as an educator, and, and in many uh, areas of education today, we have a tendency to focus a little bit more on the lower end student. How do we bring them along? And, and, and that's all well and good. But Napoleon, I think, had it right. You also want to make sure that you identify the very best and brightest and give them every opportunity to develop their their minds and their ambition so that they want to go on further. Uh, and and uh, he, he then comes up with the lycée, which is a post-secondary school, uh, 30 of them initially at least, who, who are completely controlled by, by the state and to really to some extent by Napoleon himself. Uh, he established scholarships, uh, and most of the scholarships did not go to people who knew the right people. Uh, two-thirds or more of them went to those people who had been identified in the earlier uh, levels of education as being especially uh, worthy. And then the rest of them went to sons of military folks and, and government employees. Remember, there's no longer a nobility, so it's not going to go as it did in the old days to the sons uh, of, of nobility. There's a, a, a quote that I read in uh, your book, Napoleon for Dummies. Should give that a plug while we're here. Um, again, I have no objection to that. Uh, that um, as early as 1797, Napoleon had written, the real conquests, the only ones that do not cause regret, are those that are won over ignorance. Good quote. Oh, it's a wonderful quote. I, I use it a lot, as you can imagine, being an educator and and it's again, it's an element of Napoleon that we we don't hear a lot about. People in in my field who who talk to each other and, and read each other's books and know a lot more about Napoleon, uh, people like you and others know that. But the average person out there doesn't think of Napoleon as 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 being big in education. Uh, the first uh, president, uh, uh, George Bush. Uh, uh, what seems so many years ago now, when he was campaigning, uh, liked to say that he wanted to be the education president. Well, I think that if Napoleon uh, was campaigning for emperor, he might very well have uh, campaigned on the slogan that he wanted to be the education emperor. Uh, and, and indeed he was. Uh, the educational system that Napoleon established is, is still a, a fundamental part of French education today and the concepts of, 
of centralization of curriculum uh, is is still very important in in, in, in more than, more than France, of course, and even where you don't have centralization of curriculum, such as the United States, where where cur- curriculum is 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 determined uh, locally, uh, an awful lot of what he believed in, and in particular the idea of promoting a good, healthy, middle-class society uh, is a fundamental uh, basis of, of education, and really in most Western democracies today. And of course, if you then sort of skip forward to the latter part of the 19th century, when we had you know, the, the great enlightenment throughout France and we had lots of philosophers and artists and authors and, you know, the, that sort of beautiful blooming period in the late 19th century, you can track a lot of that back to the educational reforms that Napoleon instituted. No question about it, my friend, no question about it. Napoleon was in so many ways uh, a, a man ahead of his time and an awful lot of what he did uh, pushed Europe into a whole new era. And we'll probably hear this more than once in our discussions, and maybe I've made it already. Uh, but the fact is that in many respects, Napoleon is the father of modern Europe. And you can certainly say he's the father of, of modern European education. Because, again, remember what the other countries were all about, including uh, England including Spain, Austria, Prussia, Russia, uh, the various uh, portions of Italy. These were monarchies. These were empires. These were uh, people still committed to the old feudal order. And education was primarily reserved for the sons of the nobility class. Not entirely. uh, I mean, as far back as Charlemagne, after all, you know, it was possible for uh, a really bright commoner to break into to things. But, but generally speaking, education outside of Napoleonic France was very narrowly uh, determined. Uh, and, and, and as a result, what Napoleon did was, was just a huge step forward. And, you know, I guess, obviously, even though the sort of the Age of Enlightenment had proceeded and in a lot of ways led to the revolution, the writings of Voltaire, uh, etc. Yeah, Rousseau and so on, sure. sure. Exactly. But, you know, in those days, you could get in trouble and you could, you know, quite often be assassinated if you said something that upset either the king or the church. And what uh, Napoleon did after he became first consul is enshrine those basic freedoms into the legal system of France and then the rest of Europe that enabled people to speak freely about such matters without fear of you know, being executed by the religious or, or feudal systems of power for saying something that they didn't want to hear or they thought was uh, going to be uh, dangerous to the current power system. Sure, no question. Uh, which is not to say that Napoleon doesn't engage in censorship later on and that, that Napoleon doesn't, uh, in time have his uh, system of, <coughs> of spies and secret police. After all, he's a leader of a country that's at war for most of the time that he's in power. And, and, and so certainly, uh, French people don't have, let's say, the kind of of complete, almost complete freedom that you do in the United States or Australia or the, or the United Kingdom. Uh, but even here, you, 
you you can criticize the government to a point, uh, certainly without fear of reprisal. On the other hand, if you go a step too far and 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 and, and let's say uh, advocate the violent overthrow of, of a government, then then that government's going to step in and perhaps rightly so uh, take some actions against you. Uh, but again, we get right back to the 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 common refrain here, and that is that if you look at Napoleon in the context of the time in which he existed, he was extraordinarily progressive and extraordinarily ahead of his time. Now, this uh, another story that I liked here. I was reading about uh, what was that? Ah, yes. Now, aside from education, Napoleon obviously thought that education was was a great thing and something that had to happen, but didn't think it was the only thing that you needed to motivate people to improve themselves or better themselves. And he had a lot of interest in creating honorific orders. Obviously, there'd been a lot of honorific orders throughout history with the old regimes, and that was something that he thought uh, he could use as part of the way that he was going to run France. And there's obviously a famous quote where uh, one councillor protested the use of baubles to motivate people, and Napoleon famously said, it is with baubles that men are led. And yeah, he then went on to create, obviously, the Legion of Honour in 1802, which was very effective for him in motivating at least soldiers. But Sure, uh and 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 he did get a lot of uh, a lot of criticism for creating uh, the Légion d'honneur. Uh, by the way, it has to be pointed out that for all of the criticism that it's going to create this this new uh, social order, it's a a new way of of creating an elite. Uh, the fact of the matter is, it was then and still is. France's highest honor, uh, and it's not just for military; it's for civilian, uh, it's for women as well as men, and it's also for for people outside of France. Uh, there are various people throughout uh, the last couple of hundred years who are British or American or Australian and so on who have received the, the Legion of Honor. Uh, I had someone mention to me once that if I kept all of my work, who knows, maybe I would uh, get that. Of course, I could only dream about such things. But the but the point of it point of it is that that yeah, I mean, people who do things that the French government decides uh, are worthy of recognition can get. And there's there's other honors that, that France gives uh, the Palm Académique and so on, the academic palms. But the Légion d'honneur is the number one uh, award of, of France. And, and uh, Napoleon caught hell for it. Uh, it took a while to get it through. But as you say, he understood how to inspire people, whether it was inspiring his soldiers to fight hard <coughs> or inspiring his countrymen to work hard and accomplish great things. He could do exactly that I mean, he would give soldiers uh, a uh, a little uh, pinch of snuff out of his personal snuff box as a reward for having been there, or 
or tweak them on the ear, you know, to the point of actually being very painful. Uh, and the soldiers, of course, would just eat this stuff up. Uh, and, and he instituted other medals, other awards, uh, muskets of honor, swords of honor to give to high-ranking people and some that were not so high-ranking for, for great things. Uh, and of course, uh, General Moreau, who wasn't a fan of this process, ridiculed it by decorating his cook with a casserole of honor. Well, sure, you know, and that's that's all well and good, and 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 people could make fun of it, but it worked. I mean, Napoleon was right when he says it is by such bubbles that men are led. He's absolutely right. When when I was in Vietnam, uh, which of course dates me right away, uh, let me tell you, uh, soldiers. Were, were pleased <coughs> to get uh, the Army Commendation Medal, uh, the, the Bronze Star, the Silver Star. <coughs> I received the Army Commendation Medal and, and the Bronze Star, and, and th- those were two of my proudest moments. And, 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 and I, was, I was very, very touched by, by those awards, and people have been touched by those awards uh, since the beginning of time. <coughs> In fact, we uh, just recently, this week in Australia, uh, the last medal awarded to uh, our Gallipoli veterans. Sure. Sorry, I'm just pausing while you uh, do whatever the hell you're doing to your microphone. <laughs> I'm sorry, I took my microphone off so I could cough here a little bit. Maybe it, maybe it made more noise than it should have. <laughs> made and, more know, noise than the cough. I was, I was just going to say that um, the last medal that was awarded to an Australian in uh, World War One in Gallipoli just went up for auction and uh, was bought for a million dollars by a gentleman called Kerry Stokes who runs one of our television networks here and he put it on public display. And, you know, it, obviously there still is a lot of affection for those sorts of awards and sort of medals. So I've got the rest... I Go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> Sorry. I've got the rest of the quote here where Napoleon said, It is with baubles that men are led. Voltaire described soldiers as Alexanders at five sous a day. He was right. You imagine an enemy army is defeated by analysis? Never. In a republic, soldiers performed great deeds largely through a sense of honour. It was the same under Louis the Fourteenth. I don't pretend that an honorific order will save the republic, but it will help. Well, that's a, that's a great quote, and... and uh I think it makes the point very well. I was just going to say, with all due respect to to my uh, bronze star, which I, I and I will admit I'm very proud of it. It's it's framed and, and hangs in the wall. If someone will pay me a million dollars, I will be happy to surrender uh, my bronze star. I'll give it a good salute and, for the greater and, good. And for the greater good of, of history. <laughs> I would be willing to do that. I should also say that even organizations, for example, I'm, as, as I think most of our listeners may know, the executive vice president, editor-in-chief of the International Napoleonic Society. And we have uh, literary awards, which I'm honored to have received a couple, and, and we have the, the, the Legion of Merit, which is given, it's a big gold medal uh, or a gilt medal, uh, made by the same folks that make the, the medals for the Olympics, uh, it's, it's, it's given to people who are really important in promoting the understanding of Napoleonic history. 
I was honored uh, as one of the first three to, to receive that. But more importantly, there's been all sorts of scholars and museum curators and other people who have made really enormous contributions to our our, our knowledge of of Napoleonic history who receive uh, that that medal. And the Any Napoleonic podcasters yet? Uh, not yet, but you know, uh, uh, Cameron, you, I'm I'm almost sorry you mentioned that, but. Because, in fact, you never know. Uh, I think I've said to many people that podcasting is truly one of the, the, the major next forms of, of, of getting the word out, of making history available to people. That's why I agreed to do this series, because I really think what you have done is of tremendous importance. And I don't know how many people out there are downloading and listening to this thing yet. It, it takes time to to get the word out and for podcasting to become the, the kind of thing that it will be. But I'll tell you, think about how fast the iPod has taken off and how many millions of people uh, have those doggone things. I mean, you buy cars now, and they've got plugs for the iPod built right into them. I mean, that's okay, that's, David, that's amazing David, stuff. Let's 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 not get distracted, David. We're running out of time. It was a throwaway comment. I apologize. We can. No, no, I don't. I don't mean it as a throwaway. But what I did want to point out was that the the Napoleonic Alliance has a President's Medal, which I've been honored to give to some people. Uh, baubles are extremely important, and Napoleon understood that. And all the criticism notwithstanding, uh, he was right. And as you as you said earlier, I mean, the Legion of Honor, he gave away 30,000 of them during his time in France, and it is still today the most highly esteemed award that you can receive in France. And people wear it, as I understand, it's a very thin ribbon that you wear through your top buttonhole, which is very well, elegant. There's different there's different varieties. They have a little lapel button kind of thing, which is what you're talking about, and then you can wear the medal itself in certain situations. If you're an officer, you get the thing, big thing that goes around your neck. There's there's different levels of it, uh, and 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 uh, I, I I'm honored to know two or three people who who have the the, the Legion of Honor and 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 people like Don Horward, you know, who who built up the huge Napoleon program at Florida State, and Ben Weeder, who was the founder of the International Napoleonic Society, both of whom are not French, of course, and so uh, good examples of what I said earlier, that, that France recognizes the work done by people outside of France uh, uh, to promote uh, French culture, French history, and so on. Now, they uh, just do good work. We're, we're running out of time. We Again, we thought this was going to be a short episode, but uh, surprise, surprise, we, we've, we're through what? an hour and we've got more to what? go. What were we thinking? <laughs> exactly. Now, a couple of other things I wanted to talk about uh, just while we're spending this bit of time on domestic issues. Um, you know, the big things that come to mind for me are always his um, amnesty to the emigres, the people who had left France during the revolution, and he offered them the opportunity to come back to France without uh, fear of reprisal. They would not get back their property, but they could come back to the country and resume life as free French citizens. And also the um, in the series of public works, the, the building that he undertook, uh, you know, obviously probably the most prominent example of that that we're familiar with today is the Arc de Triomphe and the Champs-Élysées, which unfortunately wasn't finished 
um, by the time he was sent into exile in St. Helena, but obviously was uh, started several years later, obviously, for his uh, marriage ceremony to Marie Louise, wasn't it? Sure, and, and he built a number of arches and, and, and so on. But what's really important, for, if you want to talk about what he built, is, is the infrastructure itself. Uh, that's so key to a good economy, and I suppose we'll close with the economy in a few minutes. Uh, you know, but building things does at least two or three different very important things. Number one, if what you're building is something that's necessary, like a road or a canal uh, or or schools or other buildings, etc., uh, then then it's it's useful in its own right. Secondly, it creates jobs. And if there's anything that any economy needs, uh, particularly one that was in such terrible condition as France was when Napoleon took over, it's jobs. And so, you know, uh, it's popular in my country now to say, oh, well, if we just cut taxes, we'll create growth. But the best way to create growth is to create jobs directly, uh, to give government jobs to people building things. And, and that's what Napoleon did, just like Caesar had in ancient Rome and Franklin Roosevelt had when he was president uh, uh, before uh, – the, the, the World War II during the Great Depression and so on. Uh, uh, Napoleon built canals to, to link transportation systems, uh, canals between rivers, uh, which gave uh, uh, France one of the, the finest systems in the world of waterborne transportation. He, he built three major seaports at Cherbourg, Brest, and Antwerp, extraordinarily important for international trade. Uh, today, the equivalent would be building new airports, I suppose. Uh, major road systems. Uh, we always think of the Romans and the Persians as great road builders, and, and, and they certainly were. Uh, but Napoleon did an awful lot of road building as well, uh, including some through the, through the Alps, which was, was extremely important. Uh, he was also, I always like to say, one of the world's first environmentalists uh, because he believed in and instituted a, a program of planting trees along the roads so that people had shade as they went along. Remember, they're going on horseback or carriage or they're walking. I mean, this is, you know, this is not the Audubon we're talking about here. Uh, and it would get hot. So he planted trees. And as we all know, trees are, are worth a great deal more than just the shade that they provide. <clears throat> we think of Paris as a great modern city today with the boulevards and so on. Uh, Napoleon was the one who instituted a program of paving the streets of Paris. <clears throat> he was also the one who instituted the odd and even numbering system for addresses so that you could find <clears throat> a place that you were looking for. To preserve those places, he instituted the Parisian Fire Brigade. So he really was involved in just about every aspect of the infrastructure you can think of. Yeah, have a, have a drink, mate. Rest your throat. <laughs> <laughs> and all of this, of course, relates to the last thing that we want to talk about here today. And in some respects, it's the most important, although it all ties in education uh, and, and uh, uh, the code, Seville, all ties into the economy. People aren't going to be happy unless they've got jobs. If they can provide for their families, then they will support just about any government. And, you know, when Bill Clinton ran for office, 
president of the United States a number of years ago, his campaign had this slogan, it's the economy, stupid. <laughs> and that's a campaign that Napoleon, uh, a campaign slogan Napoleon could have used. It's the economy, stupid. <clears throat> the economy had been a basket case before the French Revolution, and it was one reason for the French Revolution. The revolutionary government and then uh, the directoire had not been very successful at reforming the economy, at giving people jobs, and, and frankly, people were were fed up <clears throat> by that. Uh, there had been bread riots under Louis the Sixteenth. There were bread riots under the consulate, or excuse me, under the directory, and so on. Uh, and it took Napoleon to to deal with things. One of the biggest problems that, that Louis' uh, government had and, and, and the French Revolutionary government had was the, the debt. There was a huge debt. Fifty percent of the of the intake went to military uh, no, excuse me, fifty percent of the intake from taxes went to paying off the debt. Twenty five percent went to current military expenditures leaving only 25% of every tax sue that was collected uh, to go to the kind of things that were necessary. This was before Napoleon. No one knew how much money they had. No one knew uh, uh, whether they were going to get paid the next day. They didn't even know how many people were in the army. Uh, there's this famous story that's, that's in my book, but it's in lots of books, uh, so it's, it's hardly unique to me. Uh, he, Napoleon one day decided, well, I wonder how many soldiers I actually have in my army. And so he goes to the appropriate government official in charge of such things and says, you know, how many men are in the army? We don't know. Well, check the payroll records. Uh, we don't pay the army. Uh, how about checking the ration lists? Well, actually, we don't feed the army. Well, then check the clothing list. They've got uniforms. No, sir, we actually don't clothe the army either. <clears throat> now, whether this exact conversation actually took place or whether it simply represents the situation that Napoleon found is a little difficult to say. But the fact of the matter is that Napoleon knew that they had to have more income and it had to be spent on the right kinds of things. So he institutes a national lottery. He... he He's, he hires a bunch of professional tax collectors who are going to be paid a salary. Uh, tax collectors from the time of the Louis uh, were called tax farmers, and they were paid a percentage uh, of what they collected. So there was incentive for them to collect a lot and report little and then keep uh, the difference. And, and, and so Napoleon uh, you know, changed all of that. Uh, he increased taxes, you know, shockingly enough in today's uh, political uh, world. He understood that some people might actually have to pay a few more taxes so that we could have the kind of programs that we just talked about. Uh, and finally, to deal with the bread riots and things, he said, okay, the government's going to buy bread. We're going to buy other kinds of foods, staples, and we're going to distribute them to the poor so that the poor no longer say the government isn't taking care of them and we'll put it in these riots. Uh, he goes He goes further on. Maybe the single biggest thing that he did was he instituted uh, the Banque de France. He indicates the Bank of France. This is the first time in France that there is a central controller of monetary policy, a central controller of currency, a central bank, which all modern uh, uh, governments have now 
is something that's absolutely essential to control the value of your currency, the amount of money that you have out there, because if too much money is distributed, you'll have inflation and the money becomes worth less. Uh, and, and all of this is done through a central bank. And it was took Napoleon to do it. He, he got rid of the, the, the paper money, the assignettes, and he, he, he instituted a system of actual hard coins, uh, uh, which, of course, people preferred in those days, and maybe still now, I think less so now, uh, like to have a good hard gold and silver currency in their hand. Let me tell you, my friend, Napoleon took a basket case that, the revolu- that Louis couldn't fix, the revolution couldn't fix, <clears throat> the, con- the, the directory couldn't fix. Within one year, one year, he had the economy of France completely turned around. The debt was gone. Tax collections had increased. And, 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 and people had a sense that the taxes were fair. The value of the currency, the huge inflation rate, stopped. You know, inflation can bring down governments. It can destroy economies. It can destroy people. And, and inflation in pre-Napoleonic France was rampant. It ended under Napoleon. Poverty, you know, maybe we'll never be rid of the poor, as they say, but poverty was greatly reduced in that first year. And let me tell you, if you want to find some reason why Napoleon was wildly popular a year or so after he took power, why people were glad they had allowed him to become their leader, his economic reforms, probably more than any of the other things we have discussed, are the reason or were the reason for that popularity. The education feeds into it. The infrastructure feeds into it. The law feeds into it. But when you create jobs, create a stable monetary base, give people hope for the future, the world is at your feet. And believe me, within a year of Napoleon taking power, the world was at his feet. And as we'll find out in the next episode, that wasn't the only thing he had to do in that year. Not only did he, you know, <laughs> rewrite the legal system, rebuild the economy, put into place all of the systems of public works and jobs creation, he was also back out fighting the Austrians. And uh, we'll tackle that in the next episode of Napoleon 101, the podcast. Thank you very much, Mr. Markham. It is my pleasure as always, my friend, and I look forward to doing it again. And I want to encourage those of you who listen. Uh, we have a couple of ways for you to respond to what we do. One is to simply post a response on the podcast uh, 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 network uh, website uh, under Napoleon 101. And the other, of course, is to go to the newly established forum and start some discussions. Uh, I urge uh, you to use both of those ways to let us know how we're doing. We occasionally get questions. We try to answer them in separate emails or occasionally on the show. Uh, I've been out of town for three weeks or so, so if if there's a question or two out there I haven't got to, uh, forgive me. I'll try to get to it. But we like to hear from you. It lets us know that what we're doing is in fact worthwhile. So I hope to hear from you soon. And as for you, Cameron, let's do it again soon. Take care, David. You too, my friend.
on the Podcast Network. Listen. Learn. Evolve.